Good morning, everyone. We're so glad that uh, you're here this morning. And as I uh, have, well, Trevor let us know quite a, quite a long time ago that um, he might need someone to fill in for him on February 16th. And um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a privilege, it's an honor, it's uh, a deep responsibility to dig into God's word and then share that with all of you. It do, it's a good thing for an elder to do. It uh, reminds us how much, reminded me over the past month and a half, how much we need to pray for our pastor as he studies the word each week to bring us a message that um, God wants us to hear. It's a huge responsibility, and uh, I thank you for giving me the opportunity to do that. I also want to say, we, we had a pastor once, Sheila and I did, that there's some texts that are easier to preach than others. And, um, but when he came across a tough one, he used to say, this might be a hard word today. And I, and I think today might be a hard word today for some of us. It was for me in some ways as you think about it, and I'm going to ask you to meditate on it too. But along with that hard word, there's a hope, a, a strong and clear string of hope throughout it. So I hope that comes through most of all. The words that we sang this morning in the songs that we sang, in Christ alone, the gospel right there, and it's God's word that tells us what that is and that that is true. So just those couple of openers this morning. Let's, let's begin in prayer, and then I'll jump in. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Last week it was snowing, and we weren't even able to come together, and yet this week the sun is shining and we're here, and we're thankful for that. Thank, I, I thank you for the church, the body gathered in this building this morning and worshiping throughout the world, lifting up your name, wanting to know more about you, wanting to live their lives in a way that shows who you are, and what you've done for them. Lord, I pray that this word this morning, your word that never returns void, would, would be a blessing, that it would be instructive, that it would help us know how to live and know how to hope. We thank you for that, Lord, and all that you're going to do this morning. I pray, Lord, that I become nothing and that you become everything. And the words of my mouth would be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do I have any basketball fans in the crowd? Oh, good. We've got a few and some I, I didn't know. I am one. And for the NBA basketball fan, this weekend is a lot of fun. It's All-Star weekend. Um, there's different things going on that help the best players in the world showcase their talents and show what they're able to do. And every player would like to be chosen for this, but not every player is. In fact, two weeks ago, one rookie player who was so put off by not being picked for the team, the Rising Stars team, posted a pretty nasty, expletive-loaded social media rant, making derogatory statements at the NBA, for snubbing him for not being able to play in the game. 
But later that evening, that same evening, the same player apologized on Instagram after his team's game, and he wrote, and I quote, I want to apologize for my actions today. I used extremely poor judgment and inexcusable language in a moment of frustration. In no way does what I said represent who I am. And on his Instagram post, he closes with, in Jesus' name I play. Now, I would ask, which social media post truly represents the heart and character of this individual? The initial post or the follow-up, later response? Now, I want to be clear. My, my point is not to be judgmental of this young man because we all make mistakes. We're going to dig pretty deep into that this morning. We have lapses in judgment. We say and do things that we later wish we hadn't. Rather, is to help us reflect on our actions and what that says about who we really are. John is going to speak directly to that in our text today. The title of the sermon, I've titled it, A Paternity Case. In today's text, John gives us evidence for spiritual paternity or who our Father really is. I was thinking, though, wouldn't it be helpful if there was a test to determine who our spiritual father is. Kind of like a 23andMe. You spit in a vial, you send it off two weeks, you get it back, here's your father. Well, guess what? John has provided a test for us just like that. Right here in 1 John, and it doesn't cost you a dime. Before we get to the reading today, though, I want to remind you of some tests that John has already given us. Throughout chapter 2, John offered three self-scoring tests, so to speak, to determine if we're sincerely and wholeheartedly following Jesus. First, in 1 John 2, 3 through 6, he gave us a behavioral test. Is there a growing desire in us to honor, please, and obey God because of what he's done for us? So that's one. And then he gave a second. There was the relational test in chapter 2, 7 through 11. Because God has given, forgiven us, are we willing to forgive one another? And that's the second test. And lastly, the doctrinal test. I wouldn't say any of these are more important to one another, but this is where the truth lies. Have we believed in the core body of truth? that we must believe in order to be a Christian, that Jesus is God, come from the Father. Remember who John was speaking to. He's speaking to his church, to the church, and there's people saying a whole lot of things that aren't true. So he's wanting them to have these tests to know, this is who I am, this is what I believe, this is how I show that I believe it. As we move forward from right at the end of chapter 2 into chapter 3, John transitions from a focus on abiding that he speaks to ten times in chapter 2, to a focus on becoming a child of God. The expression of salvation as new birth is a prominent piece in John's writing. And because of this, it causes us to evaluate who our Father is. So that's what we're going to do today. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 John 2. Uh, We're going to start with verse 28 and go through uh, verse 10 in chapter 3. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. 
If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. Everyone who breaks the law, in fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appears so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. Again, thanks for God's word that shows us the way. We're We're going to get into this text kind of verse by verse. There's some that I'll couple together. But you can see the whole, who is your father, this paternity case idea coming through loudly and clearly. So we're going to dig into that this morning. Verse 28, this one is uh, leading up to to the hope, and John is speaking. He says, continue in him, dear children. These types of encouragements are going to go all the way through John. But I want to point out that since a person cannot continue in something, that they are not already in, this is yet another reminder, another reason to remember that Jesus is writing to believers here, to people who are already in Christ. God's desire for us is that we all be confident when Jesus returns, a solid confidence based on nothing that we've done, but on the work that Christ did for us. The opposite of this confidence is to be ashamed, to shrink away. Certainly that those who don't know Jesus, the unsaved, will be ashamed when Christ returns because for them his coming means their judgment. John was reminding his readers that it is our response to Jesus in the present that determines our future destiny. To accept the false teaching of the Gnostics, which John was combating, would be to reject Jesus and be condemned at the future judgment. For it would show that a person never had really belonged to Jesus at all. To remain faithful, as John set out right at the beginning in the apostles' teaching about the person of Jesus, would assure confidence before Christ on the day of judgment. So if we can't ultimately be rejected, 
Why would Christians be potentially ashamed to see Jesus when he returns? If we're caught up short, living in ways that are displeasing to the Lord at his coming, wouldn't the natural reaction be one of shame? This is what John wants his children to avoid. John tells us that the surefire way to have confidence when Jesus returns is to abide. I'm going to try and use an explanation to explain this. I hope, I hope this works. Um, the leadership class that some men are going through, our first book was all about expository preaching. And it said, be careful of illustrations because they might not hit the mark. So I'm really hoping this hits the mark. It hit the mark for me. So Sheila enjoys having our house a certain way. I enjoy that too and greatly benefit uh, from her desire to keep our house that way. When she's gone, when she leaves for work or, or to visit family or friends, I have a choice. Not dissimilar to knowing Christ's desire for me and how he wants me to live when he's gone and I'm waiting for his return. I know how Sheila would like me to care for the house while I'm gone. In anticipating return and wanting her to be pleased, I try to make every effort to make sure the house is in order. Yes, even making the bed, assembling the many, many throw pillows that go on the bed. But when I do this, I'm confident that when she returns, she'll be pleased. But here's a wrinkle in this illustration. How would I behave if I knew she was coming home but was kind of unsure as to when she might come home? If I persevered in making the bed, tidying the house, even wiping off the counters, putting the dishes away, I would be very confident that she would be pleased upon her return, regardless of when that happened. And this is the case with Christ's return. We don't know when that's going to be. How might we respond so that we're confident when he returns and not ashamed? The message is, let's be confident. Let's have our house picked up. Let's abide in him and seek to do what he desires for us. Verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Again, a reminder of who John's speaking to here. He's speaking to his children, his children, the church but he's the culture that they're living in. He was writing to refute the teaching that sin didn't matter. He wanted his children to know that those who knew Christ would act as Christ did, righteous as he is. Those who didn't know Christ couldn't act that way. John gives us an incentive for living rightly as Jesus' second coming in verse 28, but in verse 29 here, he gives us the grounds for living rightly, the new birth. This new birth is a birth that is accomplished by God alone. Notice that John says in the last part of verse 29, has been born. In other words, God is the source. He is the originator. He is the one who causes this new spiritual birth to take place. You had nothing to do with your physical birth. We had nothing to do with our spiritual birth. Your salvation was initiated by God, not by you. 
There is not one hint of an idea that good works brings about salvation here or anywhere else in the New Testament. And that's important for us to hear this morning because as we get deeper into this, you're going to say, well, I'm supposed to do good. You are. But know that that's not what saves you. It's Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. Our practice of right living gives evidence that we've been truly born into the family of God. All Christians should live in keeping with Jesus' righteous character. His character governed his conduct, so should ours. We should live up to our adoption. The expectation reflected is that all who are God's children, who are call him his father, would be righteous. John is saying that ultimately our conduct is the clue to our paternity. How one behaves is a reliable indicator of who one's father is. So in the light of this second coming of Christ and our incentive to practice righteousness, here's a few practical things that you might think about. If I know Jesus' coming is imminent, how should I transact my business today? If I know his coming could come at any moment, what kind of husband and father should I be? Wife and mother or son and daughter? How will I conduct myself in my leisure time at a ball game, watching the all-star game, at the office, in church, and a hundred other places? Something to think about. Verse 3. What an exciting verse. Uh, chapter 3 starts, I'm sorry, not verse 3, chapter 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. <clears throat> Excuse me. As I read that verse, did any of you want to break out in song? Of course you did. <clears throat> and we should. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. Some of you are a little uncomfortable with that. I wondered if you would be. <clears throat> and it, you sang it in a round. It was beautiful. It reminded us what great love the Father has for us. What hope there is in that. While we were yet sinners, while we killed his son because of our behavior, he loved us so much. <clears throat> that we should be called children of God. So John uses this term children. On the other hand, Paul characteristically uses the term sons of God. Both are true. What's the difference? Son is a legal term describing our relationship with God through Christ. Christians have been declared to be sons of God. They've been adopted into the family legally. John does not use the term sons, Rather, he uses the term children, term that reflects origin, birth, family relationship, family likeness, and characteristics. What we are, first point, is God's children when we've accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior. Our song this morning that we sang in Christ alone, not going to be snatched from his hand if we are a child of God. What hope that is. We should never be ceased to be amazed at God's love for us. It far exceeds all other love 
This love, John says, has been given to us that we should be called children of God. It's not a love that you and I deserve. It's a love that's a gift. God has given us this love and has called each of us his child. These words describe titles of honor. God has given us the honor of bearing his name. And if he's given us the honor of bearing his name, then he gives us the responsibility of bearing his character and who he is. Colin Cruz, a New Testament scholar, observed, Adoption gives us the name of God's children, and a new birth gives us the nature of God's children. Adoption is the legal act by which our Father places us in his family. Regeneration is the spiritual birth where we receive the nature of God. People who aren't God's children or don't recognize God or recognize him as a father. They don't recognize us as children of God either. The world does not know the Father, so it should not be any surprise to us that the world doesn't recognize us as children of God. The reason the world does not know us is because it didn't know him. Remember what John said in his gospel, John 1, 10, 11. Jesus was in the world, but the world did not know him. He came to his own, and they did not receive him. Here's a question for you, a question for me. I've been grappling with it for a month and a half. Do we so much resemble the nature of God and his son Jesus Christ that the world does not know us? Or do we resemble the world so much that Christ doesn't know us? Pretty profound question. So what are we? A child of God. What will we be? What we will be is conformed to the image of Christ when we get to heaven. Verse 2, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Human children, us, can look at our parents and have a pretty good idea what we will be. It was just two years ago that my father passed away and at his wake uh, I have three brothers and one sister and we were up in the front of the church and um, I wish I had a picture but you'll just have to use it in your mind when the four boys of us are together um, sometimes you can't tell us apart in fact um, the, my son's grandkids have often come to me and said Papa they think I'm uh, his, their grandfather when it's really my brother. And not only is it that we look alike, but there was a lot of joy in sharing it at my father's funeral, and there was a lot of laughter. And when the fruits get together and they laugh, the cackle is unmistakable. It's, it's a fruit cackle. So if you didn't see them, you'd still know it was a fruit because of the way they were laughing. That's what we should be like in relation to God. We should so much reflect who he is that it's easy to see, maybe even from the joy of the laughter. When we read about what Jesus' resurrected body was like, we get some indication of what it's going to be like, how we'll be different than we are right now. But the truth is, I don't even think we can come close to grasping it. I had an aunt who was a hard farm farm, uh, wife, hardworking lady, and, she, and who was a, a lover of Christ and a believer, but she said, when I get to heaven, I hope I just get to sleep. She was just tired. 
she was tired. I don't think that's what heaven's going to be like. But I don't know. I do know that Jesus is going to be there. And when we see him, we will be like him. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see him face to face. For now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. In order to understand that we will have that what we will be has to start with who we are, a child of God. But God isn't only interested in making us his children. He desires for his children to bear his likeness. God is about the business of making us more like his son. He's at work all the time to help us learn to think like Jesus, to talk like Jesus, and to act like Jesus. Our full and spiritual inher- full and final spiritual inheritance is in heaven and awaits the return of Christ. But you know what? That inheritance is ours right now, even though we haven't come fully into possession of it yet. Now we're going to get into the final point, which is what we should be. This is based on the fact of who we are, children of God, who we're going to be, like Jesus when he returns, then we are to be people who live pure lives. Verse 3 says, All who hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. Since we know that Jesus is righteous, since we are continuing in that righteousness, so as not to be ashamed when he returns, when he comes back, we are going to be like him. Then if we have this hope, that is the hope that we're going to be like him, then we purify ourselves. It keeps our mind on the right things. My friend Andy was super kind enough that in the middle of this week, he was willing to listen to my sermon early. And uh, he helped me so much. One way he helped me, and you can thank him for this, is that it was going to be about an hour long before I realized that I needed to do some major culling. But yesterday morning, I I said, I think it's done, and I printed it off. That was my way of saying it was done. And I texted Andy and said, thanks for for being there for me and, and helping me through it. And he said, Roger, just listening to that trial run Help me focus on righteousness more this week. That wasn't me. That was God's word. But that's what he wants from us, is to think about righteousness. Not because we can make ourselves pure, but because he is pure. So thank you, Andy, for doing that. Now we're going to switch gears a little bit. Talking about purity and holiness and righteousness. But now John's going to get heavy into the meat of it. He's going to talk about the opposite of purity and holiness and explain sin to us. In verse 4 and 5, he says, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appears so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Let's start with this verse 4 first. John says that people who sin are lawbreakers. Simply put, sin just is lawlessness. Because at its core, 
Sin says that what God says and wants doesn't matter. The only law sin cares about is the law of self. I'll do what I want to do because I want to do it. Anytime we sin, we miss God's mark. God is perfect. His law is perfect. That was the purpose of the law, for us to be able to see how we we can't meet the mark. But that doesn't mean through Christ we don't try. Think of the Ten Commandments, or the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are recurring themes, even, and at the end of our, our reading today, it's going to talk about that. That is God's law for us. That's the target. When we don't hit that target, we sin. But thanks be to Christ for being the perfect sacrifice to forgive us when we miss the target. And we're going to talk about more about that in just a little bit. I don't know if any of you have ever shot a bow or arrow. But I know we have a few archers in here. I know Bill Transburg is a, is a bow hunter. But I want you to think of yourselves as an archer. Okay? The word helps us know what the target is. So if we're an archer, we know where the target is. And we do our best in his strength to hit it. And then to seek forgiveness when we don't. Lawlessness, however, is not only not trying to hit the target, it's refusing to believe that there even is a target. In fact, the archer with this mindset goes up, kicks the target over, breaks the bow and arrow over his knee. That's lawlessness. Jesus hates sin. John the Baptist said in John 1.29, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the gospel. Sin and Jesus have no part with one another. However, does this text mean that the Christian does not sin? Here's the hard part, folks. Okay. Let's read on. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. The lawlessness of sin in the life of a Christian is especially wicked because Jesus appeared so that he might take away our sins. This is something we know. To live then in sin is contrary to what we know to be true. If Jesus came to take away our sins, then why would we live in them? In fact, since in him is no sin, then if we're living in sins, we can't certainly say we're living in him. John goes on to say, no, in verse 6, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. I'm reading out of the NIV today, and I've read so many text versions of, of these verses trying to help make sense out of it for myself and for you today. But here's what, I, here's what I'd like to say that it's saying. No one who lives in him sins. The NIV translates this, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. What the NIV is trying to do is recognize that Christians do sin. But remember back in John 1, 1, 8, John said that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, 
I'm sorry, I lost my point. So how can John say that no one who lives in Christ sins at all? If we follow the NIV, we can say, well, I might sin, but I don't sin all the time. I don't keep on sinning. But the problem is, we do keep on sinning, even when we try not to. If we take this passage this way, and I want you to hear this really, really carefully. I'm going to say it twice. We'll find ourselves, if we're honest, worried about whether or not we've sinned too much to be real Christians. I'm going to say that again. We might be worried about whether we've sinned too much to be real, real Christians. Here's the main point that I think John wants us to get out of this and I want you to walk away with. If we sin at all, now listen carefully, if we sin at all, then we're not living in Christ. John has been telling us that Jesus came to take our sins away and in him there is no sin. We're considered his children when we do what is right. So it seems that when I sin, I do so because I've stopped abiding in Christ. Like Peter in Matthew 14, 22 through 31 When he got out of the boat and he began to sink, he only began to sink when he took his eyes off Jesus. We fall into sin when we take our eyes off Jesus. I think about Andy again, and he said, Roger, I thought about righteousness. When you think about righteousness, you're you're keeping your eyes on Jesus. So sin breaks our fellowship with Jesus. So what do we do when that happens? Talk about full circle. It was about six, seven months ago. I, I was up here and I talked about forgiveness. And I quoted 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Why does he do that? So that we can have renewed fellowship with him. The point is then, if I continue to sin then I can't say I have fellowship with Jesus. But the especially good news to come out of this statement is that if I want to overcome sin in my life, if you want to overcome sin in your life, then the answer, and this is, such a, this is the hope, this is the beautiful part, the answer isn't to put all of my efforts into beating back sin. It's to put all my efforts into getting to know the one who defeated it for me, Jesus Christ and for everyone else. Verse 7 says, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. As we get into these verses, be reminded of the heresy that John is calling out. False teachers are behind the notion that one can be born again and yet practice a sinful life, do whatever they want. John refutes this. And one commentator, I think, puts it beautifully. The test of true salvation is the evidence of righteousness being produced in the professing Christian. We might call it the fruit of what they're living. This doesn't mean that a Christian is perfect or that he cannot sin because all Christians do acts of sin at times. Christ died to take away sins and he's taking away progressively the sins of every true child of God through the process of sanctification. It isn't a one and done. It's a lifelong process of sanctification. A Christian, though, cannot go on living 
while loving a life of sin. Those two natures, they can't, they can't be together. Here's a quote that I thought was so good. A man once saved can never be lost, but a saved man can never be the same again. A man once saved can never be lost, but a saved man can never be the same again. Verse 8 says, The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. An unsaved man, according to the Bible, is a slave to sin and Satan. He's bound in the chains of evil forces, but Christ came to set the Christian free from that bondage. He literally came to untie, to unloose the works of the devil as though they were actual chains. Satan was defeated at the cross, but he's still waiting his final sentence. You might say he's presently out on bail with much influence over us. But the Christian is being progressively delivered from the bondage of Satan and his experience. 1 John 4, 4, which we'll get to in a few weeks, John says, You dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. As a result, the divine nature of God within us makes the regular practice of sinning impossible. Did you hear that? As a child of God, the divine nature in us makes the practice of sinning impossible. The practice of sinning. No one who is born of God makes a practice of sinning or will continue to sin. The person who lives righteously is righteous, just as Jesus is. Once again, for John in this text, our conduct provides the evidence for our paternity, who our father is. Now to finish with verse 9 and 10. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they've been born of God. This is how we know who are the, the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. He lumps those into the same uh, thought. Chuck Swindoll comments that God's seed, in in, uh, verse 9, the Holy Spirit, is within every Christian, though we remain sinners. However, God loves all sinners, even though, and listen to this, the devil seeks to confuse lost sinners into thinking they are saved and confuse Christian sinners into thinking they are lost. But let's not be confused. The one who is truly born from above does not habitually commit sin as a pattern of life. Why? Because God's seed is in him, the Holy Spirit. The seed is the new nature given by God through the indwelling spirit, the Holy Spirit. It is this new nature from God that gives us the desire to live a holy life. A Christian cannot sin without a struggle or without a sense of grief so powerful that ultimately, despite the struggles, he'll be brought to repentance and a forsaking of sin. Sin is no longer natural to a believer. Though we may slip into it, it's contrary to the nature that God's given us. So imagine this, if you would, with me. We're all standing together looking out in a pasture, 
and there's a pig and a sheep walking along. As they walk along, they both fall uh, fall into a mud hole. The difference in their nature immediately becomes evident in their reaction. The pig, kind of picking on pigs here, but the pig is perfectly happy. In fact, he rolls over on his back singing home sweet home. The sheep, on the other hand, is disturbed, troubled, unhappy, and miserable, and earnestly desires to get out. The unsaved person loves sin, but the saved person, while he may sin, can never love it or really be happy in it, and calls out to the good shepherd to rescue him from the mud hole. In summary, this is what John is saying. If we, like the pig who loves wallowing in the mud, have not begun to turn from evil or from wrong, and if we've not begun to love our brother and sister, think about that. He adds that into the same verse, loving our brothers and sisters. Then we're only deceiving ourselves. If we've just seen in the passage, John says that he who is born of God cannot continue to sin. We just can't do it. If we go on living as we always have lived before, we profess faith in Christ, then we haven't been born again. We have only experienced a surface psychological reaction that's not the new birth at all. As a friend of mine told me, he said before he came to Christ, he had no problem with sin at all. He didn't know he was living in sin. After he professed faith in Christ the Holy Spirit began to shine a light on his behavior in new ways, causing him to feel the need to change. This was not to earn salvation, because he already had it, but to provide evidence of the work of Christ in him that provided his salvation. So in closing, how do we apply this difficult and seemingly very black and white teaching Here's a few thoughts that I have for you and for myself. One, are we ever increasingly sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit in our life? That is the light that's shining on us. Is the idea of sin against a holy God, we sang about holy God this morning, does it become more and more distasteful to us? Because it should. The two aren't compatible. Does the evidence borne out in our hearts and thoughts and minds indicate in a constant abiding in Christ, getting to know him better, trusting in his work and sanct- of sanctification in our life? <clears throat> and here's one other one that I think is important too. Do we acknowledge that God loves all sinners not just the elect. He loves everyone. He, he, he would desire that none should perish, even the ones who, haven't, who have been deceived to this point and aren't yet his children. What will be our role in sharing the gospel? I think of our Good News Club that starts this week at West Salem Elementary. Maybe kids there that have never heard that before. Never but they're going to hear it on Thursday. Remember this too. Excuse me. We can't use our culture to evaluate or help us judge whether we're on the right track or not. 
Remember, the world didn't know Jesus. <clears throat> Excuse me. And if we're acting in him, it won't know us either. Abide in Christ. Engage in true fellowship with one another that encourages abiding in Christ. A child of God regularly and consistently walks away from sin and into righteousness. And because he or she has fellowship with God and with brothers in, uh, and sisters in Christ, the light shines on our sin and causes us to want to confess it, per 1 John 1.9, so that fellowship is renewed. I ask that you would do that for me as the body of Christ. Would you help me walk in righteousness? That's what we do as a body of believers together. But what should the message mean? Maybe you're here today and saying, I don't think I am a child of God. Why not believe in what the gospel message is all about? Seek to understand that you're a sinner who is separated from God because of your sin. Understand that Christ, who is perfect and without sin, died on the cross as a perfect sacrifice for that sin, for my sin and yours, and it is forgiven once and for all, sins past and sins to come. And with that new birth, it is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And because Christ lives in me, I seek to live in righteousness, just as he is righteous. With that, it allows us to say, What we are is God's children. Who we are, or who we will be, is conformed to the image of Christ when he returns. And based on those two facts, we are people who live pure lives while we wait for Christ here on earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the truth of it and how it perfectly illustrates who you are and what you've done for us. We thank you for that. And Lord, help us to not be confused, but to be completely clear that a child of God will very much care about how he or she lives. We live in a culture that still... It's not so much different from the one John was addressing that says it doesn't matter how we live, and yet your word says something very different. So we thank you for your word, Lord. Help us to be encouraged by it, to hang on confidently to the assurance of salvation, that we would love one another, our brothers and sisters in Christ, as you've commanded us to do and that we seek righteousness as you are righteous, and that our body of believers here would encourage us to do so until you return. And Lord, we look forward to that. Our hope is in that because it purifies us, thinking about you and who you are and what will be when you return. Thank you so much, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As the worship team comes, Um, we're going to sing a couple songs. Um, Come to the altar first. And that, I I first uh, gave my life to Christ coming to an altar. And and it's still a a memory that's quite vivid in my mind. But that altar can be where you are and and, uh, bringing up, seeking forgiveness. Then we're going to